Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for its preservation. We thank you for the freedom we have in this place to read it. We thank you for the challenge that it lays on our life. We thank you for the call that it has on our community. We ask for the courage to follow through. We ask this in your son's name, amen. Hey, the Apostle Paul, uh, when he penned those words in Hebrews that Robin read for us so beautifully right now, um, I'm pretty sure that what he was thinking about was connecting all of those dots. All of those dots in the First Testament that were so real and vivid to him because he just wanted to show us just how simply complex the Bible really is, just how simply complex the Bible really is, which in turn, for me, makes it utterly irresistible because it's simply complex. Um, when it's utterly irresistible, it becomes simply complex. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into the question straight away because we have so much to cover today, and, uh, and I want you to make sure you've got your worship guide. So if you don't have your worship guide, just put your hand up, and we'll make sure you get a copy of this. This is your worship guide. Anybody need one? Um, there you go. If you want to make sure, and right up here at the front just went. No, it didn't. It's back. See that magic? That's great. Is it my batteries? No. We're good? All right. Hey, and Peter, we, we'll need one at the front up here as well. Oh, great. Thank you. So inside the worship guide here, the recalibrate questions, first page here, the very first one is this. How many times have you found something that seems simple but was actually really complex. It seems simple, but it's actually really complex. Like, you know, you propose marriage, seems simple, but it's actually really complex. I mean, just, just for instance. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I would like to imagine that I'm very good at DIY, and uh, I presume that that translates in this country, DIY? Great, just, just I didn't check that, I should have checked that. Uh, but I would like to imagine that I'm very good at this. I'm not good at DIY, very good with an engine, but not good with DIY. My wife can attest to that. Uh, but you know, sometimes I think to myself, you know, that, oh, look at the shower. What if we could just make it four inches wider? I mean, it wouldn't be hard. Right? I mean, it shouldn't be difficult. And suddenly you feel that, you know, you've, you thought it through, it was pretty simple, and then you realize that you, you probably need to sell your house. Um, and, uh, and as a result of that decision, you probably need to move out of the state. Um, and as a result of that, you probably need to move out of the country, which explains why I'm here. Um, uh, <laughs> A few years ago, I, I, sensed, I sensed to myself that I needed to establish faith development at Boulder Church as a ministry, faith development as a ministry here at the church. And we wrestled with this. We, we said to ourselves, well, maybe this could be under discipleship as one of the pastoral assignments under discipleship, or, or maybe it could be uh, an elder's council that could handle faith discipleship, and, and, or maybe something under one of the leaders. And, and it was gone around all over the place. We, we thought it was pretty simple, but but it is far more complex because it is difficult, because it is so much deeper, just even amongst those who've never been to church, let alone those who've been to church and have grown up in church for generations. So as I was preparing for the series that's coming up in October, which is going to be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And this Protestant Reformation, we're going to be celebrating sola scriptura, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Uh, of course, you can't really celebrate and call yourself a, a Protestant unless you are reforming something, right? Right? You can't really call yourself a Protestant unless you're reforming something. And you can't really be reforming anything unless you accept the Bible as your source and you calls you into action. So we're back at square one. Um, it's like we, we tried to move the shower four inches and, and we had to move out of the country. So I thought, man, I, I need to make sure that 
everybody's on the same page because we can't arrive in October and suddenly find out that half the congregation or, or part of the community doesn't really understand the Bible in the same way. And because I have discovered that several people have major, major problems with portions of the Bible or, or people have said to me, I haven't read the Bible in many years or, or there's certain sections of the Bible that I would like to ignore or there are certain portions of the Bible that really cause conflict in this. So, we're going to cover the whole Bible in three weeks. I know, impossible. Of course it is, I know. Embracing the Bible as a revelation of God in three weeks. Impossible, of course it is. Um, and all the difficult passages in the Bible, though, in three weeks. Impossible, of course it is. Hence, I'm relying on you to read the daily walk every day. And if you study the daily walk every day, it's still gonna be impossible in three weeks. We're not gonna get it all covered in three weeks. But uh, I think that we could highlight probably three areas, three areas that maybe make some people pause. And maybe your friends pause when it comes to the Bible. Maybe it has made you pause when it comes to the Bible. So these are the three areas that, are, that I've heard from people that make people kind of like, well, you know, when I think of the Word of God or when I think of your Word of God or what you think the Bible is, these are things that make me pause about it. And here, here they are. Number one, uh, violence and uh, the barbaric practices in the Bible. I read the Bible, I'm like, oh my goodness, a lot of bloodshed. Uh, uh, didn't somebody take a tent peg and through all that terrible, you know, Bruce Willis would have been ashamed of that kind of stuff. Uh, number two, uh, fantasy. A uh, lot of fantasy. Seems really too far-fetched. Uh, a, uh, a lot of ponies flying through the air, and wings and weird things happening, fish, guy inside a fish, just weird stuff. So uh, it doesn't make sense, you know? I think, that, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of guys using a lot of shrooms and uh, writing stuff inside there. Just doesn't make sense inside there. Number three, uh, Jesus uh, seems to contradict himself uh, sometimes. He says things like, uh, you have heard it said, uh, but I tell you, and you know, I'm just not quite sure what he's really on about, and, uh, and then was he really real? Is he historical? So these are the three things that I've heard people say that they kind of push back in the Bible. So next week, uh, we're going to look at complex expectations, and we're going to take the story of Jonah. Um, why, if you were God, uh, would you choose the story of Jonah? A fish, a guy being swallowed up in fish, spat out on the ocean, on the, on the seashore there. Why would you take that story, and what would that story be inside then? And how would that actually even, even encourage you to believe the rest of the Bible as the authority of God, or, or to show you anything about that? So we're going to look at that. It feels more like a, a Marvel comic storybook than, than a biblical story or a sacred text. And the final week, we're going to look at complex beliefs, complex beliefs. Jesus had these six statements. He said, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. And uh, we need to say, what's up with that? Is Jesus changing everything? Uh, what were these six statements about? What are the six hot issues that he really wanted to push buttons on? And why did he address these? And uh, what were they really about? But today, today we're going to look at complex faith. Complex faith, and we're going to look at complex faith through the eyes of a chap called Abraham. Really easy guy, Abraham. So, question number two. In your worship guide, question number two. Again, if you, if you want to go through these questions in your life group or in your community, you're welcome to do that. There are some Bible study classes after the uh, worship service here that actually discuss these questions as well. You're welcome to turn one of those classes as well. Why is powerful faith complex. I know somebody right now in the congregation is saying, I think that's a leading question. You're right. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed of that. It is a leading question, because uh, I have a conclusion behind that. Um, I know we would like to all believe that, uh, that we should know the future. At least we'd like to believe that we should know the future. But if we knew the future, right, if we did know the future, we would have absolutely the most horrendously boring lives, simply going through the motions. The strength of life 
is not knowing absolutely everything in the future. For those of us with OCD, this could be very difficult to listen to right now because you want to know it, but the sense and the reality of discovery is really good. Take this example. In Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, they believed there were 153 different marine life, 153 different fish out there. Today, there are over 2 million different marine life that they have discovered. In 100 years from now, who knows how many they will have discovered. I mean, it depends how many we eat, but, but there are millions of different types out there. So why should our faith life, our view of God, be limited to knowing absolutely everything? When we talk of Jesus, sometimes we make it become so mundane, like we know all the answers, like you know all the beliefs, like you have all the faith, that nothing's gonna shake you, that you won't make any more mistakes, that you do not need Jesus anymore. And it, for me, it feels as if we're, we're kind of like children. And I often feel, and uh, I, I've been working through this, I often feel that fundamentalists and, uh, and liberals, like extremists, right? So extreme liberals and extreme fundamentalists, uh, they're most typical, they're, they're kind of like, like puberty, hormonally fluctuating teenagers. Does that make sense? Fundamentalists and liberals are puberty, hormonally fluctuating teenagers. Uh, and I put all these words together because they, they, they really cause me pain, each one. I think about each one of these words, and they all cause catastrophe in people's lives. Uh, and this is what happens, is that these people, the, the ones who are fundamentalists and liberals, the extremes on both ends here, they're constantly trying to take God and faith and the Bible and put it into a tiny box and define everything about it into there. So that's why when people look at the Bible and they want to reject the Bible, it's because they really haven't given the Bible any time. They've just concluded, this is my view of the Bible. It's my six-year-old view of the Bible, my one Bible study view of the Bible, my, my, my one church experience, my 10-year attendance of a one-hour sermon uh, experience of the Bible. That's all it is. And so they accumulate all this stuff and said, well, I've been to church for 30 years of my life, and so because of that, I now know everything there is about the Bible. You, uh, you haven't given it the chance to let it breathe. And if you haven't let it breathe, you haven't really taken it in, and you haven't digested it and allowed it to become this way. Why is this? And, and the best metaphor that I have found is the, the difference between Duplo versus Technic. Duplo versus Technic. We've got an image, I think, that uh, kind of illustrates this. Duplo versus Technic. You see that? <sighs> yes. And I'm going to leave this up for a little bit of insight here. Let me explain this. It's the, it's the best metaphor to explain this. Every kid has their own ideal toy. If you've read on the Daily Walk, you maybe read an introduction to the series here. I would explain some of the toys that I really like, but I love Lego. Uh, and some people who I've met, uh, I, I find out, if I find out they like Lego, I like to gauge how they played with their Lego. Because you can tell a lot about how people play with their Lego. If people play with their Lego by sorting them out into sets, I won't tell you what it means. If people play with their Lego by the sort of mounting colors, if people play with their Lego where they have one gigantic bucket of chaos, I'll let you interpret what that means for itself. Uh, if people play with their Lego where they only build the sets and never do anything different, they may have some serious issues that they have to work through. Uh, and so there are, there, you know, there's all sorts of ways to approach the Lego, right, Amy? I mean, you understand this? You, you, you know, so, so these are the things that we, we have to process about Lego, right? And Lego has the ability to, to allow you to be creative. But there is Duplo, which is the, the basic beginner big blocks. Uh, one piece of Duplo is an entire animal. You may add uh, maybe a seat to it. That's it, done. Technic, though. Technic has a lot to it. So Duplo Lego is very, very simple, and it's very, very beautiful. And, and in your conclusion of the Bible, uh, when you look into the Bible, I sometimes think that we read the Bible like it's Duplo, which is good. It is important to read the Bible like Duplo at some point, to read it as big swaths, to, to get the big picture. 
but you have the possibility to grow as a human being with your knowledge of science and life and, and the economy and the world, and if you don't grow your knowledge of the Bible, you are sometimes approaching God in the Bible with all of this knowledge up here, but with a duplo level of scripture. And so your conclusions about God are not fair. They're not fair. You're not giving it justice. You're approaching it like a duplo mind. And you have to be able to balance it out because the Bible and science actually are in harmony. Technic, though, technic is beyond Lego, beyond Duplo. It is tons of small, infinite pieces, humanics and motors and, and wires and, and, and all sorts of crazy little pieces. There's a new piece of Lego that just came out two days ago, the Millennium Falcon. It is Lego's largest piece ever, $800. It comes out on October 1. 7,500 pieces of Lego, where you will sit down for years, placing pieces together like you have no friends, <laughs> together saying, hello, gray brick. Oh, this is better than jigsaw puzzles, by the way. I know some of you, like Sherry Eichmann, enjoy jigsaw puzzles. And uh, again, counselors suggest that uh, jigsaw puzzles and, uh, are ready for for people with different issues. But Lego uh, is, uh, is entirely different. It is really, really good. So uh, the, the Millennium Falcon is this, is this glorious delight. They have been showing you all the things that it does, all the secret passages inside it. It even makes decaf cappuccinos, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's, it's gonna be amazing. So the Technic Lego, though, uh, the way to approach the Bible with Technic Lego is to be able to see all the dots connect. This is what the Apostle Paul did. He, he had read the Bible, the First Testament, for himself as a Duplo. And then when he wrote the second, you know, most of the Second Testament, he became the Technic Scholar. He was like, oh, that text, oh, it means this. And he connected dots in places that you never imagined. He pulled pieces together and you started to, started to see things in places that you're like, I didn't get that. So when he read Genesis chapter 11, Okay, and you read Genesis chapter 11, and you read this during the Daily Walk, right? And you said that the Tower of Babel was built, and it said there was brick, and there was bitumen, and they, you're reading about this stuff, and you're thinking, oh, that's fantastic. They, they found brick, and they found oil, and they were mixing together and made this stuff. You have no idea that what he's really trying to say, say inside there is that that when technology comes together, the entire world is gonna change, and when technology arrives, the world shifts, and so when technology, God is saying 4,000 years ago, when technology arrives in society, the world will shift, and Moses is trying to tell you, be prepared for technology to change the way you react, and he's telling you this through the story, but you read Duplo instead of Technic sometimes, so we have to look for this Technic stuff inside there. We have to accelerate ourselves between the Duplo to the Technic. So when you're reading the Bible, I, I want you to be able to say, oh my God, not in a blasphemous way, all right? But like, oh my God, you're amazing. I want you to be kind of like in awe, rather than reading the Bible and your mind starts to wander away thinking, what's on Netflix? And then you're like, oh, I was reading the Bible, come back again. When you're praying and within about 13 seconds, I mean, you literally just finished saying the Lord's name who created the universe, and you're starting to think, what am I having for lunch? It's because you're in Duplo world, and you haven't encountered the Technic world. You haven't started to create the dots. And God is saying, when you start to create the dots, when you start to see the Technic, you, you can't put it down. You can't leave it aside. You start to read the text, you're like, you're constantly like, my goodness, I think, I think I get it. I think I kind of see where that's coming from. I, I read that, and I'm like, that could be an allusion to another text, and you're kind of excited about that. So, when it comes to faith, complex faith, Duplo faith would basically say this, there's nothing ever wrong. Abraham and Sarah had a great marriage. That's Duplo faith. Circumcision without painkillers, fantastic. Abraham never had a real knife when he went to see Isaac. That is Duplo. Technic and beyond faith is honestly breathtaking. 
It's inspiring. So when Paul reads it, and he shares in Hebrews, he says, Abraham grew through complex faith to trust God more and more. It will take you off the edge of your seat, and you will want to read the Bible even more. But that's not how he started, Abraham. No, he started it's duplo faith. In fact, it is normal to have duplo faith. In fact, the Bible encourages you to have duplo faith. The key, my friends, the key is to let both duplo and technic grow side by side. So there are times that I enjoy reading the Bible in duplo mode, all right? It is important to do so, just to read it, just to let it read, just to like pick up the big ideas, to let duplo and technic do it. And as you start to, the Bible is simply complex, you will see that more of your complex faith will grow. Question number three, uh, which is, how did Abraham live out this complex faith and what can we learn from his experience? Now, this is going to be a little bit controversial for some people. They're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable because when they read Hebrews, uh, as Robin had read to us, they read about Abraham and they're like, well, Abraham was this perfect, perfect person of faith. And we must be people of perfect faith. Uh, but what you have to remember is that Paul is pulling out the nuggets of gold right at the end of his life, and he's highlighting the miracle of this complex faith. So I want you to read with me Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. If you have your Bibles in the pew, it's page 9. Very hard to find. Uh, page 9, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. I'm reading in the English Standard Version, um, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 of Genesis chapter 12. I, I, you know, normally during daily week, we, daily walk, we actually ask you to read the same text in various translations, but we had a lot of text because I wanted you to, to feel the, the kind of Duplo effect of like reading a, in a big story this week. Next week, we have Jonah chapters 1 to 4, which will take you 13 seconds to read. Um, and uh, so you'll read that in different versions very quickly because it's a very short story, snappy, uh, and huge punch. Uh, you may want to skip next week. All right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and not Abraham, but Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land, and I will show you, and I will make a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moray. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Sounds pretty beautiful, doesn't it? It's a great start. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful poetic beginning inside there. And, and the thing is about the Bible is the Bible doesn't miss any of the gritty details inside there. It's not like the history books uh, that were written, the chronicles that were written of other empires at that time. If this was written of other empires at that time, they would not have mentioned Lot. They would not have mentioned Sarai. They would have just said, Abram, wealthy landowner, slave owner, people owner, took his things, went to Canaan. That's all it says. But the Bible is simply complex. And we'll see that Abraham, when he lives his life out here, has a very complex faith. And there are three ways that he does this. In the move, in the call, and in the ethics. You're gonna memorize those? Ready? The move, the call, and the ethics, all right? So here we go, the move. God said, Abram, I want you to leave your family behind, head out to the land, I will show you. What does Abram do? Abram heads out, all his family, but he takes his nephew Lot with him. Now why, if God said, leave your family behind, did Abram take his Lot with, nephew with him? Did he not say, leave your family behind? I mean, he didn't take his dad, didn't take his cousins, 
Didn't take his uncle, didn't take anybody else. Why did he take his, he didn't take his brother. He took his lot nephew uh, with him. And the reason he did this is because in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, when it's going through the genealogy, and you're reading the genealogy, and you're kind of like, he begat, he begat, he begat, I'm kind of bored. Suddenly it says, and Sarai was not able to have any children. So the story is set up to tell you that Abram is married to this girl called Sarai who can't have any kids. But Abram's been given a promise. You, Abraham, you're going to be a father of many people. You're going to be a great nation. Abraham looks at his wife, Sarai. Yes, I am. Looks over at his lot nephew. Oh, of I am. Come on, boy, let's go. And takes Lot with him. This is how he takes his complex faith and he lives it out. He fixes his faith by making it work for himself. Number two, the call. Tribes in those days were all about conquering, right? They were all about conquering. They're like, we're going to go conquer land. We're going to make ourselves wealthy. We're growing. We're going to take on more. Wherever you go and a tribe went to war with another tribe, their deity, their god was more powerful than the other tribe. So if they won, they could say, my god is bigger than your god. And it was pretty fantastic. So they were really happy about that. So Abraham is listening to the promises of God. God says to him, take you to the promised land, number one, right? Take you to the promised land. Check. Number two, he says, make you a, a great nation. Check. Uh, number three, he says, uh, oh, actually, do we have these on the screen? Let's go back. Number one. There. Take you to the promised land. Number two, make you a great nation. Number three, bless you. Check, he's all that's happening about that. And then he says, so that you may bless others, so that all the earth may be blessed. Uncheck. Uncheck, 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 retract. Uh, this is not good. Everyone says, listen, listen, God, I, I just want to let you know, this is not how it works on planet Earth. <laughs> on planet Earth, we conquer to win. <laughs> and when we win, we take over, and we, we win. And, uh, and now you're saying we're supposed to conquer and then make them strong? I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm not feeling this. I'm not feeling this. And God says to him, listen, I, I want to I show you how to become a new kind of leader. I want to show you the kind of God that I am. And he gives them a glimpse of the God that he is that is different to any other God. It's not there to conquer people. It's there actually to bless other people. You will become great and you exist to bless other people. This, my friends, is the problem of Abram and the problem of Israel later on. Because they were like, I don't really like this. Israel, even when it became really great, what did they become really great? They became really great. They became a great empire. When they were really at their highest point, what was they considered their highest point was under which king? Which king did they consider their greatest king? It was, a, it was not rhetorical. You can actually answer. Who was Israel's greatest king? Yes, you don't know. Which one? Somebody said David. Somebody said Solomon. Solomon's the correct answer for Israel. David's the correct answer for God. Mm, somebody's like, I feel really smug. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, because for Israel, Solomon was the heyday when the empire was great. When they were in exile and they were in captivity, did they go and say, oh, oh, I wish we were nomads running around like David? No. They were like, I wish we had the temple like Solomon. I wish we had the navy like Solomon. I wish we had the wealth like Solomon. I wish we had the wise, well, maybe, like, you know, we wish, we wish, that kind of stuff, like Solomon. That was the heyday of Solomon. But Jesus comes along, and he doesn't claim Solomon's glory. He claims the line of David. He claims the heart of David, the innocence of of David, the authenticity of David, the mess of David, and says, this is what he's looking for. And Israel struggled all the time because God said, I created you to be a blessing to other people. But what they wanted to do was become a blessing to themselves. So they built systems 
that ended up protecting themselves from everybody else. They bubble wrapped themselves from everybody else. They built systems where they didn't have to interact with anyone else, where they didn't have to talk to anybody else who was not like them, where they didn't have to work with anyone else who was not like them, where they didn't have to be with anybody else who was not like them. So everybody just lived in the commune that was just like them, and they kind of just sat to themselves, and they didn't want to talk to anyone else, and they didn't blend with anyone else, and they didn't go out to anyone else. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to turn this upside down. The gospel goes everywhere. It's to the Gentiles. It's to everyone. And, and he pushes it out again and again and again. And this is really difficult then. So you, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Jesus did not open up a church in Lakewood and have 52,000 attendees join him and Joel Olstein every week? He could have. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't build a mega church when he arrived here? It wasn't like he wasn't popular. It wasn't like he didn't preach messages where after 5,000, 15,000 people came to him and said, make him the king. And he said, no. You ever wondered why Jesus didn't choose any of his immediate family? Why Jesus chose 12 disciples, in fact, focused on three? Why Jesus chose women who were considered outsiders? Why Jesus chose Paul, who was not part of the 12 disciples? Why Jesus chose him to write nearly all of the Second Testament? Because in the First and Second Testament, Jesus, because in the First and Second Testament, God, because in the First and Second Testament, the Holy Spirit, because the Trinity in both the First and Second Testament have always, always been about everyone else in the kingdom. So they come along and they say, how about we go choose a chap called Abram? Maybe we'll turn him and make him become Abraham. Eventually, this guy will bless the world. Not think about himself. And I think, I think he might be able to imagine that he could actually care for other people. What if he didn't love just himself, but he started to think about others? Alan Creeder, in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, said that in the first 300 years of the early church, this is just after Jesus, he said, the Christians were known for two things. They were known more for healing than preaching, and they were known more for hospitality than theology. Right? They were known more for healing than preaching, and they were known more for hospitality than theology. They were not about themselves, they were about others. Three, the ethics. This is really hard. Abraham, soon after his journey, bumps into some other leaders. He bumps into some kings and some princes. And just for the record, Sarai, his wife, by the way, uh, was his half-sister. I know this sounds a little bit weird. It's like you're in middle Europe and the royal families are all married together. Or like you're in Washington, D.C., uh, before it was Washington, D.C. Um, and everybody's like married together, you know, it's just, it's just kind of weird. But that's exactly what happened in this time. Half-sister, Abraham, they're married together. Sarai was apparently Miss Universe, all right? Because every single place Abraham turns up, he's convinced that she is the hottest thing around. And everyone's going to just look at her, and they're going to like... Get rid of Abraham. Just like take him out of the backyard and get rid of him. Right, just straight away. And so he is so convinced of this that he really just needs to deal with her as a really great trading asset because, of course, she can't have any kids. So in chapter 12, he offers Sarai to Pharaoh when he meets Pharaoh, right? And uh, she is at this point, by the way, 65 years old. Pharaoh is actually ready to kill Abraham for her. He looks at Sarai, and one moment he's like, oh my goodness, I've got to have that woman, Abraham. And he's like, oh yeah, she's my sister, have her. Straight away, right? And then chapter 20, uh, he offers Sarah, Sarah now to Abimelech. Uh, she's now a mere 90 years old. And uh, Abimelech's like, oh yeah, 
She is the one for me. Now, either the veils that they were were really, really thick, or, or, or she was the hottie uh, of the Middle East at that time, and, uh, and just like ravishing, I mean, just outstanding. Like, I mean, she just, I don't know, she had a walk or something, or just like, it was just mesmerizing to them. However, however, I know you're thinking, how could Abraham stand up against Pharaoh? against Abimelech, I mean, these empires, what chance would he have? Come on, Pastor Japheth, this is not fair. This is not complex faith. This is stupidity. How dare you suggest that poor old Abraham should fight Pharaoh and Abimelech for Sarah and Sarai for, I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? So let me share a few little things about our friend Abraham. So you just understand uh, uh, how brave this fellow is. When Lot, uh, his nephew, uh, is arguing right at the beginning of the story about uh, his shepherds, he goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, um, my shepherds want some land. And Abraham says, do they want some more land? Oh, my poor nephew, have a look through the valley. What do you want? Lot stands up and says, oh, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at that beautiful green pasture down there. Can I have it all? Abraham says, looks over the other side and says, oh, no grass, rocks, and, and, and no water. Green grass, water, and valleys. Lot, take it all. So he gives it all to Lot, right? Fair enough. Is Abraham generous, or is he trying to secure a future for Lot? I'll let you wrestle through that. When Lot is captured by the kings of Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah get captured by these kings that come down and they, they capture Lot as well. And, uh, and this, this is in the valley where all the uh, bitumen fields are full of oil. So all the oils like landing around there makes you wonder how those cities caught on fire, but that's another story. Uh, Abraham risks everything, 318 men, captures and says, we're going to war against these kingdoms. We will go fight and rescue everything to go rescue Lot and these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he rescues them, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah say, can we give you any payment? And Abraham says, no, no payment required. It was just for you, Lot. Uh, generous or is he trying to secure the future for Lot? Later, uh, Sarai suggests to Abraham, because she can't have any kids, could you sleep with Hagar? Abraham thinks, for queen and country, I shall. Um, and, uh, and so they have a son called Ishmael. When God comes along to him and says, Abraham, I, I told you, the promise is from you. It's not from Hagar. It's going to be from you. In fact, it's going to be from you and Sarah. And he says, oh, can't you just let it be Ishmael? I mean, I don't need a child with Sarah. It's fine. Ishmael's doing okay. You know, and, and I've got Lot. Uh, is he generous or is he just securing his future here? I would suggest, my friends, that Abraham can be brave when he needs to be brave but Sarah is not valuable to him. She is valuable to God, but she is not valuable to Abraham. The story continues though. There's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because God has heard the cry of their pain, of the suffering there. The social injustice in the city is rampant. In fact, it, it appears five times inside there where they talk about the injustice taking place, the social injustice of every age from young to old all the way through inside there. And, and God draws Abraham into this conversation and it, they kind of reverse the roles inside here. It, it appears as if he's trying to teach him, as if God has no idea what's going on, right? And, and Abraham sort of like, well, um, God, you know, what if there's like 50 people in there and 40 people and 30? And you remember the conversation inside here. And he's haggling with God about this. And he's trying to rescue the city. Why is he trying so hard to rescue the city? Is, is he really learning the lesson that God is trying to teach him? That he's supposed to bless other cities and take care of other people? Or understand the process that the city is definitely 
definitely evil and hurting people and hurting children and doing horrible things inside here? Or is he just protecting Lot all the way? In the end, Lot has to be dragged out of this city with his daughters, and, and a horrible act of incest takes place afterwards, which is disgusting at the end of this. Yet the mystery of grace takes place here because Lot is saved at the end of this. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, will pick up on the story and say at the end here that it is because of Abraham that Lot was saved, just as we are saved because of one person, Jesus Christ. But the final story of Abraham is when he and Sarah, now both recognized as old, have their son together. The miracle, Isaac is born. And God asks him to take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And only at that point will God know that Abraham is faithful and is truly developing his complex faith. And it's usually at this point that people look at the Bible and they kind of say, well, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can follow this God. This is kind of like a barbarian right now. This is kind of crazy stuff inside here. I'm not gonna read this book anymore. This is crazy stuff. This God, he's out of control. He's asking people to sacrifice children. So question number four, our final question this morning. How does the Simply Complex Bible help me see who God is? Well, this is where we have to go to technic and beyond, my friends. If you read this story just as Duplo, you will conclude, oh, this is a barbarian of a god, and what does he know about here? But if you start to read this as a technic story, you'll understand the context inside here. The children of Israel have been in slavery for 400 plus years in Egypt. They have forgotten who God is. They understand the power of the whip. They understand the power of Pharaoh. They, understand what, uh, they don't understand what a healthy marriage is. They want revenge. In fact, any chance that they can get revenge, they will take it. They want power in their hands. They want to dominate somebody else. They want God that, that destroys their enemies when they snap their fingers. And along comes Moses, who wants the same thing. He killed an Egyptian at the very first chance he had, and he could overthrow the empire as soon as he could. That's what they wanted. And Jesus sends Moses out to the wilderness for 40 years. He says, listen, Moses, to become a Jedi, to enter the dragon, to be the master, to, to beat your base camp, to reset yourself in Jesus, to be who you are. You have to go out with the sheep out there. You need to be able to begin right at the beginning. And, and he, in order to write these first five books, which he does, the first five books here in Job, and to be able to bring new identity, I need you to actually go reset your clock inside it because the Bible is simply complex. It is rich with these lessons. So Moses tells us this. Jesus got down on the ground and he formed you. He named you, he called you, he promised to die for you, he will rescue you, he'll work with you, he'll use your language, he'll use your methods, he'll use your culture. These are all important, you must remember this, because these are things that are significant about the First Testament. We judge God based on methods that he put himself into so that he made sense to us. He will push you, but only that in a way that's sustainable to us. Hence, Paul shares in Acts, he says, in the past, God winked at us. He winked at us. He looked at us and said, all right, I'll do this. So Abraham, he says, let me bless you. And Abraham accepts this. Abraham, let me bless you so that you can bless others. Abraham accepts that. Abraham, let me, let me actually make a contract with you and make you understand that I'm going to use the culture of your time. Well, Abraham, the way they made contracts in those times is that they parted animals. They would literally like cut an animal in half, a few animals in half, and they would walk between them. I know, I know what you really wanted Abraham to do and God to do is God would have brought an iPad 10 down to Abraham and said, by the way, Sometime in the future, this will be very popular. And uh, if you could just uh, use your finger, sign here, I'll be back. And trust me, you'll enjoy this one day. But it would have been more of Abraham like, you don't understand what I touched. 
So he said, let me just use the methods that you used at that time, which were cutting animals in half and walking between them. And the rule was that, and it's kind of like they were from East London, really. I mean, they basically uh, walked through these animals, and as they walked through them, they basically said, if any of us break this contract, we were able to be cut in half of this, right? So they watch all day. Abraham's watching all day, and this is what happens. Genesis chapter 15. It's quite great. You've got to read this with me. Genesis chapter 15, page 12. Chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. Page 12, uh, Abraham is waiting all day because he is waiting for God to walk through these animals so that he can then walk through these animals. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, chapter uh, 15, verse 17, the sun had gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between his pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Ketamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and the Jebusites. In this text here, God passes his brilliance and his fire. Later on, Moses is going to write about this, the fire and the smoke, and they're going to start to understand that it represents the glory of God. Notice, though, that Abraham doesn't walk through the covenant. What? Only God. Only God walks through here. Because just like Noah, just like Abraham now, this covenant is not dependent on us. It's only on God. He says, God says, I'm keeping both ends. <laughs> if I relied on you, Abraham, I think, uh, I think you, may, uh, you may have failed. <laughs> I'll keep both sides of the contract. I'll make sure it's guaranteed. And there's more. The text tells us, by the way, inside this text, and I, I know we're running out of time, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna fly through this stuff inside here. Let me just tell you this. Inside this text inside here, Abraham is going to see items to deal with the Messiah and the future. It's going to allude to texts inside here that deal with Psalms and Daniel 8, 9, and 10. It's going to allude to the Ten Kingdoms in Daniel as well, because there's less Ten Kingdoms inside here. It's going to tie all sorts of things inside this text here that tells him the promise is far, far deeper than just about your covenant. It's about the future inside here. And there's more, and there's more. By the time you arrive to the final scene inside here, right, there's this deep echo inside that God says to him, I want to bring your son, your son Isaac, to this sacrifice, right? And you read in Genesis 22, verse 2 inside here, it says, I want you to take your son, and he says these three things in Hebrew, says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And there's a progression inside here. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, uh, God took him through this journey. He said, I want to take you from the general to the particular to the intimate. I don't know if you can see this on the screens or not, but I'm going to take you through this, through the general and the particular to the intimate. So he's going to take him from the country to the kindred to your father's household. Basically, he's taking him from your son to your one love to Isaac. Do you understand what's happening here? He's reminding him of the promise that he said to him. I'm taking you from your country, from your kindred, and from your household. And right now, I'm reminding you of your son, the one you love. I'm taking you to Isaac. In other words, it's going to take a sacrifice for you. I'm asking you to give up your past, I'm asking you to give up your father, and I'm giving up your roots, because I'm asking you to risk his future, and risk his son, and risk his hope. And all of this is tied into the story, and is written inside the Hebrew inside here. Now, the risk goes on, because Abraham has forever, in his complex faith, passed the promises on to Eliezer, onto Ishmael, and onto Lot. And God is saying, I gave you the son, Isaac. I need you to embrace that. So here it comes, the request, bring me this guy. Now obviously in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 12, God said, never do what the Canaanites do, which is sacrifice your children. So is God contradicting himself? No, he's just trying to push Abraham to a place. He's gonna use the story to symbolize something far deeper than Abraham and Isaac right now. This place, Mount Moriah, is gonna become the place where Jerusalem's gonna be built. It's the same place that David's gonna arrive and meet the angel of the Lord, where the sword will be held, and Abraham's gonna have the same thing happen to him. So now, as Abraham gets up, he's silent. The same Abraham who argued with God 50, 40, 30, 10. This Abraham is silent now. Abraham's not negotiating. Abraham is on his own path. This time, there's no promises of any outcome. This time, he's on the path. 
it takes three days to walk from where he is to Mount Moriah. The three days that Jonah talks about for the people to repent. The three days that Joshua says the people need to repent. The three days that Jesus says that he will be in the grave for the process to be done. The three days that Abraham says for the sacrifice to be complete inside here. And, and here it is. When Abraham begins in the Hebrew, there are seven verbs of action. And the final verb, when it is complete, is when he sees the ram. That's when the whole story ends. We read the Duplo story, Abraham, knife, go sacrifice your son. The Technic story, the Lego, the imagination, the beauty underneath it all. It's God saying, I want you to see that one day will be a sacrifice, a greater sacrifice than you could ever imagine. This gospel, this story, there will be someone who will give their life. And this life will change the world like you could never imagine. But this life, this life's gonna hurt everybody. It's gonna change us like we could never, never imagine here. But here's this God. Every God in that time required you to sacrifice your child. They did, they killed their children all the time. And here's a shocker. This God doesn't let you do that. Because as Abraham brings up the real knife, this God says, stop. I will substitute it. I will put something inside there. You don't do that. I will do something for that instead because you're not called to do that. And I'm gonna use you, Abraham, and this story to teach generations from here forward that they don't have to do this. And so you go, Abraham, you go bless people, and you let them tell them what they need to, but I know you will tell them the truth you will retell the story in your own way, and you'll let them know that when you walked up those three days to Mount Moriah, that when you came down, that you saw the ram, and that God provided the substitute, that God will always provide the substitute. And this book, this book, this Bible, oh my goodness, it is exhilarating. <laughs> but to be able to find that stuff, my friends, we have to go through a lot of Duplo. We have to go through a lot of Duplo. We have to study it. We have to see all that kind of stuff. And sometimes, I'm telling you this, it can be hard to be able to find the technique. So if you are finding it hard to find the technique, do not give up. Come talk. Come talk. Fill in a connect card today and say, I want to find technique in the Bible. All right? And I will come and teach you how to find it. We will together. Because when you start to find it, it is exhilarating. And this book will show you the character of God like no other. And when you see that God, your lives will be changed. Let me pray for you, and our team will take us through worship. We will end a little bit later today, because it's good to sing. It's good to worship our God. Heavenly Father, oh, I thank you for all that you do. I thank you for all that you are. Oh my God, you are awesome. To call in your name, to know who you are, that you understand us before we call in your name. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for healing us. Thank you for bringing community to our lives. Thank you for pulling us forward. Thank you for preserving the word. God, give us the courage to rise, to rise with strength change this world. In your name may we see the beautiful technic and our imagination may grow. In Jesus' most beautiful and powerful name, amen.